I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6. And I'd like us to read together verses 5 through 9. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Let's go to God in prayer once more. Let's pray. My Father, we pray in these moments now that what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you would give us, and what we are not you would by your Spirit make us. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. At first glance, it might appear that this text has very little relevance to us, very little bearing on our lives. After all, it is a text that addresses uh, bondservants or slaves and masters. But I hope to show in the minutes that follow that this is perhaps one of the most relevant texts with respect to our day-to-day lives in the entire book of Ephesians. Paul is, of course, here addressing two groups. He's addressing bondservants or slaves, and he's addressing masters, presumably those who own those slaves or are over those slaves. Now, before actually trying to understand the relevance of this text for our lives in 21st century America... Uh, we have to understand something of the context of this passage, specifically the context of the institution of slavery as it existed in the Ephesian context in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire. I imagine that when we as Americans hear the word slavery, uh, we immediately think of American slavery as it took place in this country 150 to 200 years ago, which was, of course, one of the greatest atrocities ever committed in our land. However, one of the things we should first see by way of context is that the sort of slavery that existed in Paul's day was not really like the kind of slavery that existed here in the United States. There were a number of crucial and very significant differences. And one of the commentators, Clinton Arnold, in his commentary lists four or five differences between slavery as it took place in the Ephesian context and slavery as it took place in the American South. First of all, Dr. Arnold notes that racial factors in the Ephesian context really played no role at all. Obviously, in America, slavery took place uh, uh, among African-American peoples enslaved by uh, whites. Okay, not so much the case in the Ephesian context. You had uh, slaves of pretty much every race and ethnicity in the Mediterranean uh, region. It was not targeted or exclusive to one, any one ethnic group, nor was it a sign of sla- of uh, excuse me of of racism in those days. Race wasn't really the issue. There were other factors at play, and that's one of the main differences. Dr. Arnold secondly says that many slaves in the Ephesian context would have reasonably been emancipated, even as uh, uh, young people. 
Uh, in fact, very rarely uh, did a slave remain in slavery beyond the age of 30. Most of those who started off as slaves in the ancient world would have advanced. Uh, there would have been some mobility economically. They would have been emancipated later on in life and actually integrated into the wider culture. Thirdly, Dr. Arnold notes that in the ancient world, many slaves worked in a variety of specialized and responsible positions. So you had slaves who might have worked as the family or community doctor, uh, uh, those who might have worked as administrators and different clerks, and those who might have worked even as teachers, might have specialized as linguists and educated children and students in a variety of different fields. Fourthly, and in a connected way, Dr. Arnold notes that many slaves received education and training in specialist skills. In fact, this was often part of the agreement. You come and you work as a slave and you'll be educated in the context of this institution and then when emancipated, you would be ready to enter uh, the market, enter the economy. And then fifthly and finally, Dr. Arnold notes that freed slaves often became Roman citizens and usually developed a client relationship to their former masters and at that point would have been treated in every way equal to other Roman citizens in the wider culture. Well, to Dr. Arnold's list, we could add to the list that many slaves were provided many economic benefits in return for their service in the ancient world. Uh, some of the slavery in the ancient world was entered upon even voluntarily as a contractual agreement between the slave and the master. And this might have occurred for any number of reasons. Uh, for example, one might work as a slave to pay off a debt. Another might work as a slave for certain benefits in return, such as on-the-job training or physical protection or even housing benefits. Now, by saying all of this, it would certainly be wrong to suggest that there didn't exist more cruel and oppressive forms of slavery in the ancient world. Uh, most of the slavery that existed in the Roman Empire was involuntary, and it was wicked. It was reprehensible, much like it was here in the United States. Now, the second thing I want us to note by way of context and understanding the Ephesian context is that we should understand just how widespread the slavery system was in the Roman Empire. It's been estimated by scholars that one-third of the population was slaves. So that would mean one out of every three people you would meet in the marketplace would have been a slave. One of the commentators writes this, quote, Slavery seems to have been universal in the ancient world. A high percentage of the population were slaves, and it's been excuse me, computed that in the Roman Empire there were 60 million slaves. They constituted the workforce and included not only domestic servants and manual laborers, but educated people as well, like doctors and teachers and administrators. Slaves could be inherited or purchased or acquired in settlement of a bad debt. Prisoners of war commonly became slaves. Nobody queried or challenged the arrangement. The institution of slavery was a fact of Mediterranean economic life so completely accepted as part of the labor structure of the time that one cannot correctly speak of the slave problem in antiquity, end quote. Even our founding fathers spoke of the slave problem uh, in the 1700s, anticipating that, that this is something that's going to have to be addressed in our land. Well, that was not really the consciousness of those in ancient culture. There wasn't a slave problem just part of the economic system of the day, so widely accepted, almost never questioned, and just accepted as a fact of life. Now, despite the fact that slavery was so widespread and so common and accepted in the ancient world, it was, of course, still morally reprehensible. Even under the best conditions, we're still talking about the ownership of another person. 
the taking away of the freedom of another man or woman or boy or girl, which leads to an important question. By giving instructions to slaves and masters, as Paul has done in Ephesians 6, should we understand the Apostle Paul to be condoning the system of slavery in the ancient world? After all, he simply addresses slaves and masters, seems to accept the institution as given. He doesn't talk about emancipating slaves. He doesn't talk about seeking to lobby your congressmen and to change the laws in order to change the system. So should we understand the Apostle Paul to be just accepting or condoning the slave system in the ancient world? We wouldn't be surprised to learn that the answer, I think, is obviously no. Paul is not writing in the epistle to the Ephesians a revolutionary document or a piece of political propaganda. He's writing to tell Christians how they're to live given where God has placed them. He does not write to give an opinion on the prevailing socioeconomic structure, but rather instructs Christians on how they're to live within it. We see in other places in the New Testament that Christians are to submit to the governing authorities, some of whom were oppressing Christians, by the way, But does that mean that Paul endorses government oppression? Of course not. Jesus tells his followers to pay their taxes. He doesn't give an extensive commentary on which taxes are fair and which are not. In fact, we certainly have reason to believe that many of the tax codes were very unfair and slanted toward lower classes. And yet Jesus' instruction on paying taxes shouldn't be understood as a comprehensive endorsement of the ancient tax code. The New Testament instructs Christians in how to live in a godly way where they are. And that's why it addresses slaves and masters in this text. This is a legal, socioeconomic class system already in place. And Paul is interested in how Christians ought to live within it as those who have been reconciled to God and have been reconciled to one another. It's been said that Paul addresses the problem from the inside out. Curtis Vaughn, in commenting on this text, says this, The apostles did not condone slavery. Indeed, they announced the very principles which ultimately destroyed this terrible blot on civilization. And I love this. The apostles' approach, Vaughn says, to the social evil of slavery was like that of a woodsman who strips the bark off a tree and leaves it to die. In other words, Christianity introduced the principles by which the slave system would be undermined and overthrown. And certainly in the Western world, that is true. There were Christians who endorsed slavery to their everlasting shame. And yet the reason the institution itself in this country and in other parts of the Western world was ultimately removed as a blot on civilization was undergirded by Christian principles, those principles introduced in the New Testament. This all leads to one final important contextual point as we consider Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Apparently, you had in the Ephesian church both slaves and masters in the same congregation. You certainly had lots of slaves, partly because the population was filled with slaves. One in three people were probably slaves in Ephesus. But partly, too, because the gospel so often finds more receptivity among lower and more disenfranchised classes. But you also had masters, those who owned these slaves, they're in the church as well. Now pause to think about that for a moment. We've talked before about the various diverse people who might have been reflected in the Ephesian context. 
You had those who were caught up in black magic and the occult. And upon coming to Christ and receiving the gospel, they burned their books of black magic and embraced the Lord Jesus Christ and entered that community. You had converted Jews who perhaps lived conservative, pious lives before coming to the Lord Jesus, but came to realize that he himself is the Messiah. And now they're included in the church. You had those who were caught up in all forms of sexual deviance and sexual immorality. Perhaps some were connected to uh, the, 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 the temple prostitution system there. Uh, in Ephesus, and they're converted, and they're among the body of God's people. You have Jew and Gentile, and I've said this before, if God can reconcile anybody, if he can reconcile, excuse me, if he can reconcile a Jew and a Gentile, he can reconcile anybody. These two groups, as we saw in Ephesians 2 and 3, who were formerly alienated, who were hostile toward one another, God, through Christ, made them one and united them into one body, breaking down the dividing wall of separation and removing the alienation and hostility. But we have in Ephesians 6 another powerful and profound picture of what the gospel of Jesus Christ can do in reconciling men and women to one another, such that you would even have a slave and a master in fellowship together in the same church. That's what the gospel of grace does. It reconciles people to one another. And brothers and sisters, on the front end, I just want to encourage you there is no relationship in your life left untouched and unaffected by the gospel of Jesus Christ. If Jew and Gentile can worship together, if slave and master can worship together, I'm sure all of us and any of us in Winston-Salem can worship God together if we believe through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting to think, isn't it? These slaves who were subordinate to their masters during the week, worked for them, took commands from them, in the church, at the feet of the cross, ground is level, right? And they would have been co-equals in the context of the church, such that if a godly slave aspired to the office of elder and possessed the requisite character to qualify him to such an office, he might have even been over his master in the Lord. He might have been a pastor in the church. That's what happens in the church of Jesus Christ. There's no partiality with God, and all are treated equally. Well, so much for the context. Now I'd like to talk to us here this morning, and I'd like to try to apply this text to us in a very particular way. Given our understanding of the context, I think this text can be easily applied to our jobs, our roles, and our responsibilities with respect to those who are in authority over us and those who are subordinate to us. All of us, for the most part, are under a superior of some sort, whether that's a boss, a professor, a teacher, or some sort of board. And some of us have people below us who are regarded as our inferiors in the marketplace, whether that's employees, students, etc. Most of us have people to whom we are answerable and accountable, and for whom we are answerable and accountable. And I'd like to address what this text has to say to us in those situations what this text has to do with our work from day to day and our relationships with others in our work, whether above us or below us, whether we find ourselves in the position of the bondservant, not an actual slave, but someone under someone in authority, or whether we find ourselves in the position of a master, someone over people who are under us. Now, I want to look at this text under three main headings, Paul's words to bondservants, Paul's words to masters, and then thirdly and finally, Paul's words regarding the master of all. Paul's words to bondservants, words to masters, words regarding the master of all. And before we look at these headings, I just want to say something briefly about work itself. So we're going to talk a lot about 
work and how it's viewed according to the Bible. First of all, I just want to say, and I hope we all understand this, that work is a good thing. Work is good. There was work in the Garden of Eden before the fall. There was cultivating the ground. The thorns and thistles that we experience now are not good, but work itself is good. God is a worker and we are workers. We understand this. Secondly, we should note that the principal way by which God provides for his people is through good, honest work, whether that's your own or the work of someone else. And this was one of the great insights of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther talked about this, this revived interest and appreciation for the vocatio, the vocation, that uh, uh, there wasn't this sacred and secular divide, but that all vocations can be sacred and can be leveraged for the glory of Christ and can be used in service to the Lord Jesus. And, and, and there's a, a section where Martin Luther would say, when we ask God in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, what are we actually praying? Give us the money to buy bread and give someone the gifts to make bread. Okay? God provides for his people and provides for men generally through vocations, through work. And so work is a good gift and a means of provision from God. Also, we need to note with respect to work that God assigns vocations to different ones and uniquely gifts people for their particular vocations. And so it's important for you, my friend, to pursue the vocation that God has given to you uniquely. And what's just as important is the manner in which you carry out that vocation. God gifts people for different things. He prepares people for different works. You ought to pursue that vocation that God has given uniquely to you. And then finally, I should just mention that there is no partiality with God. We understand that there is not some hierarchy of vocations in God's eyes. You ought to be responsible for the gifts and graces that God has given to you. You ought to be faithful to the calling and the vocation that God has called you to. And there's no need to look to greener pastures. There's no need to look at my brother or sister's lot and say, man, if I were really godly or spiritual, I'd be like them. God equips each one for their own work. And it's not as though there's one type of vocation that's greater than another or more valuable in God's eyes. That's all I wanted to say with respect to work. Now let's consider these headings together. Paul's words to bondservants, Paul's words to masters, and thirdly, Paul's words regarding the master of all. Most time we spend on the first, and then we'll move more quickly through the second and third points. Paul's words to bondservants. Please look again at the text, Ephesians 6, verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Now what is it that Paul is calling bondservants or slaves to do? Very simply, they're to obey their earthly masters. So friend, you have someone in, over you in your work, you're to obey that person. You're to honor authority and respect those who are your superiors. That's the plain and simple command of this text. Obviously not if they're asking you to sin and to transgress against the lordship of Christ. We recognize that. But in general, we are to obey and submit to our earthly masters. And Paul undergirds this command with what should be a new and fresh perspective for the new Christian. Paul is saying, in effect, that there's a paradigm shift that needs to take place in our thinking as believers. 
There has to be a fundamental shift in the way we think about our jobs and our responsibilities. We have to recognize who it is that we are working for after all. Christians must discern behind their earthly masters, behind their bosses, behind those who are in authority over them. They must discern the form of Christ, their great and heavenly master. And they must recognize that they serve not only that earthly master, but they serve the Lord Jesus. You don't exactly see this in the English, depending on which translation you're using. But Paul makes use of a wordplay here with the word Lord or master. Those are two different words in English meaning essentially the same thing. It's the same word in Greek. And so Paul's careful to say up in verse 5, obey your earthly masters. And then every other reference to master uh, or, or, or Lord in this text is a reference to Christ, uh, your master who is in heaven, verse 7 and verse 8 and verse 9. There's a wordplay here. He wants to distinguish between earthly masters and the master who is in heaven. Did you notice that in every single verse... Paul makes reference to Christ as the one for whom we ultimately work. So verse 5 tells us, we're to obey our earthly masters as we would Christ. Verse 6 tells us, we're to labor as bondservants or slaves of Christ. Listen, the New Testament consistently considers Christians to be slaves of the Lord Jesus. Don't be uncomfortable with that. I mean, get, get comfortable with that nomenclature. If you're a Christian, you're a Christ's slave. You're Christ's bondservant. But let me encourage you and remind you, his yoke is easy, and his burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls, for he is gentle and lowly in heart. If that's the nature of my master, then sign me up. It's a privilege to be his slave. It's a privilege to be his bondservant. And I'm so thankful that God has freed me and has freed you from the bondage of sin so that we can be bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7 tells us we're to render service as to the Lord and not to man. And verse 8 tells us that if we do good, our reward, our wages will come from the Lord. The simple idea is that all of our work is done in the plain sight of Christ with a view toward pleasing Him. So I want to ask each individual Christian here, I just put this question before your heart. Recognize all of your work is to be done in the plain sight of Christ. And it is to be done with a view toward pleasing Him. Is that how you view your work on a day-to-day -day basis, whatever it might be? Listen again to John Stott on this text. He says this, quote, Our great need is the clear-sightedness to see Jesus Christ and to set Him before us. How would that affect uh, 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 the, the teacher at 9 p.m. who's grading papers and wondering, what is all this for? What's needed is the clear-sightedness to see Christ before our eyes. How would that affect those in our church here who are, are part of the, the medical personnel in this community? How would that affect the, the detail-orientedness of your work to see Christ before you as your master? Those here who are aspiring to pastoral ministry, who are in seminary, who are studying the Word of God to be approved for the work of, of the ministry. How would, how would this perspective Seeing the Lord Jesus Christ before you affect the way you parse Greek verbs. The way you set aside time for deep reflection and study of the eternal truths of God's word. This has implications for all of us. Stott says, our great need is the clear-sightedness to see Jesus Christ and to set him before us. He goes on to say, it is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it. Or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were to be the honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children, 
for doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them, for solicitors to help clients, shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters, as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. If the work of Christian slaves could be transformed by doing it as to the Lord, the same must be true of Christian miners, factory workers, dustmen, road sweepers, and I like this, public lavatory attendants. That's those who scrub toilets. I did that for a couple summers. Once Christian slaves were clear in their minds, Stott says, that their primary responsibility was to serve the Lord Christ, their service to their earthly masters would become exemplary. So I ask you, friend, are you an exemplary employee where God has you working? I've said this before in our series on Ephesians, but Christians should be the greatest employees in the world. Being a Christian should be like a comparative advantage in the marketplace. Christians shouldn't need supervisors. They should be trusted to work well unsupervised because after all, they are under the supervision of their master who's greater, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they know that they are ultimately answerable to him. It's interesting to think again of these slaves in the Ephesian context. What might have been their posture with respect to their masters before they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Perhaps they tried to cheat their masters. Perhaps they engaged in petty forms of theft. In fact, maybe Paul's words in Ephesians 4, 28, let the thief no longer steal, but work with his hands doing good and honest work. Perhaps that was directed to some of the bondservants in the congregation. Perhaps slaves were tempted to hate their masters and to resent them and to speak evil of them behind their backs. And thus Paul has instructions about bitterness and anger in chapter 4, verses 26 through 27, and wicked speech in chapter 4, verse 29, might have been directed to bondservants. But now, by coming to Jesus Christ, all of that has changed. Paul tells the slaves that they must obey their masters. They have been sovereignly placed under their masters by the will of God and should recognize that all of their work is not ultimately done for their earthly masters, but it's done for Christ. And that would have represented a total paradigm shift for them. This is what the gospel does. It shifts our paradigms. It reorients our thinking. And so I ask you this morning, believers here, do you try to cheat your boss? Do you cut corners at work? When you are out from under the supervision of your superiors, do you slack off on the job? Do you speak evil of your superiors in the workplace? My friend, Christian conduct should be better than that. We must recognize that we work under the supervision of Christ and as those who have been saved by his grace and brought under his lordship, we ought to work diligently and honestly and in a way that honors both our earthly masters and Christ himself. Well, Paul gives some more instruction regarding the manner of obedience that ought to be rendered to masters. He says, verse five, that bondservants are to obey with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would to Christ. In verse 6, he instructs bondservants to avoid mere eye service as people pleasers, but to obey from the heart. You don't just work when eyes are on you as people pleasers, but in your heart you work as under the Lord. In verse 7, he instructs them to obey with goodwill. That is sincerely desiring the good of those who are served. In verse 8, Paul encourages bondservants to labor, remembering that their hard and honest work is lost on Christ. There is a reward that awaits faithful bondservants, and this was to inform the way in which they, they would work. Paul doesn't hesitate to talk about rewards. 
Those who work well are going to receive a reward at the hands of Christ. And so, my friend, you may feel in your current job that you are vastly overqualified and you are terribly underpaid. But I assure you, as a child of God and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are vastly underqualified and you are scandalously overpaid. Do you think you qualify for God's grace? Do you think that you qualify for his loving initiatives towards you? Do you think you qualify to be a son of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ? No, friends, we're underqualified. And on that great and final day, we will be spectacularly overpaid. Those wages we receive will not be our just desserts. They will be given by the grace of Jesus Christ who will give us the earth as our inheritance, who will give us treasures in heaven, who will give us eternal life on that great and final day. Again, friends, listen to John Stott. He says, The slave's perspective has changed. His horizons have broadened. He's been liberated from the slavery of men-pleasing into the freedom of serving Christ. His mundane tasks have been absorbed into a higher preoccupation, namely the will of God and the good pleasure of Christ. Brothers and sisters, tell this to yourself. This isn't just about washing the dishes. It's about the will of God and the pleasure of Christ. This isn't just about routine data entry. It's about the will of God and it's about the pleasure of Christ. This isn't just about another pointless board meeting. It's about the will of God and the pleasure of Christ. This isn't just about another business trip, a meeting with another client, grading another student's paper, changing another dirty diaper. It's about the will of God and the pleasure of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, so much for Paul's words to bondservants. Now more quickly, consider with me Paul's words to masters. Verse 9. Paul says, Masters, do the same to them, presumably bondservants, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. What does Paul mean when he says to masters, do the same to them, do the same to your bondservants? Well, I think he's in effect saying that all the virtues are just commended to your employees, sincerity, goodwill, integrity, you be marked by these same things in the administration of your authority. Just as your servants are to labor with an awareness that they ultimately serve Christ, you do the same. So you want to be respected? Show respect. You want those under you to work hard? You work hard. You want those under you to deal honestly? You be honest. You want to be served? You serve. You demand integrity of others? You be a person marked by integrity. Listen, it is sinful to expect those under you to possess virtues that you yourself are not willing to practice and exemplify. I think that's a simple message of verse 9. You do the same to them. You want them to act in an upright way, you be upright. You model those virtues. You emulate those virtues and characteristics. This is what Paul means when he says masters do the same to them. Essentially, act toward your slaves with the same regard to the will of God and the authority of Christ as has been enjoined on them. Paul additionally tells masters in verse 9 to stop their threatening. You might think of those who were masters before coming to Christ, how they might have been characterized by cruelty and heavy-handedness, and how they might have been characterized uh, uh, by threatening those who were under their care. And then you could imagine one of these same masters becoming acquainted with the grace of Jesus Christ and believing upon him. How the unmerited grace and favor of Christ would now inform the way he exercises his authority over those who work under him. Now the master deals gently with his bondservants. Now he motivates not with threats, but with love and with kindness. 
This is all because the master now recognizes that he himself has a new master. Maybe he had climbed the ladder as high as he could go. Maybe he had under him a vast network of bondservants. But now as a Christian master, he recognizes that he, along with his believing bondservants, both serve under the same master. And this changes the rules of the game. This changes everything. Now, pretty much everything that was said in verses 5 through 8 to bondservants applies to masters alike because Christ is master of both. The playing field has been leveled. Both slaves and masters, employers and employees, are to work under the oversight and supervision of Christ. Now, there are no slave owners here today, no masters of bondservants. But we do have here some who are employers, some who are bosses, some who are supervisors. You have people under you. Does does this text affect your work from day to day? Do you model and emulate the virtues of sincerity and goodwill and hard and honest work? Do you act toward those under you with integrity? Do you motivate by intimidation and threats? Or do you motivate by love and honesty and integrity and goodwill toward those who are under your care? Well, may God help us to conform our lives, those of us who have authority over others. May we be gracious and godly in the dispensation and administration of our authority. Now, thirdly and finally, Paul's words regarding the master of all. We've seen Paul's words to bondservants, Paul's words to masters. Now, thirdly and finally, Paul's words regarding the master of all. Verse 9, Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Christ is said here to be the master of all. He is the Lord of the slave, and he is the Lord of the master. He is the Lord of the lowest level employee and he's the Lord of the highest level CEO. And there is no partiality with him. To the Christian slave, Christ is as interested in him as he is in anyone else. And to the Christian master, Christ is not impressed with his authority and with his economic standing. He looks at the master in the same way he looks at the slave. The guy washing dishes out back To you, I would say that Christ is as interested in seeing the grime marks washed off the plate as he is with the CEO who makes decisions regarding seven-figure assets. There's no partiality with Christ. This little phrase at the end of verse 9, there is no partiality with him, deals a death blow to a culture that measures the worth and value and relative happiness of people by the size of their bank accounts. This little phrase demolishes the worldview that says you are only worth the ceiling on your economic output. And this text is a massive indictment to pastors and churches who show partiality toward God's people. Who give special places to those who are wealthy, who are hitting up their members and taking them out on the golf course, hit them up for money. Meanwhile, the poor man is never to be found at his table. James warns us about this In James chapter 2, he says in verse 1 through 5, My brother, show no partiality, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or you sit down at my feet. 
Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Friends, there's no partiality with Christ and there should be no partiality among God's people. Let me encourage you, this has implications for your body language. You interact with different ones in the church. This has implications for your eye contact. I'm in a conversation with this person, very important, they're not a VIP in the church, but there is one, let me kind of wrap up here, and this has implications for how we extend fellowship, how we show hospitality, and to whom we show hospitality. There's also a massive corrective in these words, there is no partiality with him, to both slaves and masters, for both those of low station in the world's eyes and those of high station. So you're working a lower level job, you don't have much authority or status, and you start to think what you do doesn't matter to God. My friend, there's no partiality with him. In God's eyes, you are responsible and accountable for whatever gifts, opportunities, and abilities he has given to you, however great or small. Don't for a second think that the affairs of your life are somehow relatively unimportant to God and of little value in his eyes. No room for self-pity. No room for excuses. Well, I can afford to slack off. After all, I'm just, I'm just a one-talent guy. I'm not like that ten-talent guy over there. No, no, no. God is eagerly interested in the manner in which you carry out your work before his face. And you who have high-paying jobs and a great deal of authority and many people under you, don't you think for a second that God is impressed with you? You may be applauded all day long for your accomplishments and your lofty status, but God does not make use of the world's scorecard. God does not see as man sees. There is no partiality with him. I've been reflecting on 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 through 7, a lot over the past several months. I've quoted it, I don't know, two, three, four times in sermons previously. And I maybe should just preach a sermon on this text. But it comes to mind again and again. In 1 Samuel 16, uh, Samuel is called by God to go and to find the Lord's anointed. And he's, he knows he's going to be the son of Jesse. And in 1 Samuel 16, we read, When they came, he, Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Listen, there are brothers and sisters who make $30,000 a year, but they have seven-figure hearts. And there are those who make all kind of money, and they're morally bankrupt in spirit. The Lord does not see as man sees. He looks upon the heart. Now, I'm by no means arguing that God favors the economically poor over those who are well-to-do. I'm simply saying the Lord does not see as man sees. He wants those who are rich toward God in good works, not necessarily those with a big retirement account. Slaves and masters in Ephesus needed to know that in Christ's eyes, they were equally valuable. In Christ's eyes, they were equally accountable. And in Christ's eyes, they were equally saved by the grace of Christ and made fellow heirs with him. And slaves and masters needed to know that regardless of any economic and social differences in the world, they were equal in the church and in God's eyes. Friends, always remember that in the church, there are no VIPs. We so often act like this. But there are no VIPs in God's church. And there are no second-class citizens. There's no partiality with Christ. And there should never be partiality with Christ's 
people. My final words here in conclusion. According to this text, what after all ultimately matters? What ultimately matters? Doesn't seem to be economic output, a ceiling on your economic productivity, how big your bank account is. Apparently, God can be equally pleased with a slave or a master. It's really not the issue. It's where you stand in relation to him. And wasn't it Jesus who said you can only have one master? You can't serve God and money. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to suffer the loss of his soul? And so I ask you, my friend, is Jesus Christ your Lord and your master? Are you living and walking and working with an eye toward his sovereign rule? Or are you living for the passing pleasures of this world? Is money your master? Is pleasure your master? Is sex your master? Is man-pleasing your master and gaining the approbation of your peers? Is that your master? Who's your master? According to this text, it ought to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And I call each one of you to submit yourself to his lordship, to his rule. Oh, he'll pay you a reward. He'll pay you a whole lot better than your employer can pay you. He will give you everlasting life in the paradise of God forever, in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, my friend, I call you to come to him in repentance and faith, believing upon him. There is no profit in gaining the world's approval and suffering the loss of your everlasting soul. And so I call you, embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to him as Lord. Let's pray together.